0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Behind a car park in a picturesque village, a few miles east of York, is a diminutive obelisk, a monument to a bloody battle which took place nine hundred and forty-five years ago. A plaque at its base informs visitors that the Battle of Stamford Bridge was fought here, or somewhere in the neighbourhood, on September the twenty-fifth, ten sixty-six. Nobody knows exactly where the Battle of Stamford Bridge took place, but we do know that it was one of the most significant events of a year that changed Europe forever. It was a decisive victory for the Anglo-Saxon King Harold, who fought off a Viking invading force. But even as his English soldiers were putting the Scandinavians to flight in the north, the French were invading the south coast. Within a few weeks, Harold was dead at Hastings, and the Norman conquest had begun. So what effect did Stamford Bridge have on the later events of 1066, and why did it take place at all? With me to discuss the Battle of Stamford Bridge are John Hines, Professor of Archaeology at Cardiff University, Elizabeth Rowe, lecturer in Scandinavian history of the Viking Age at the University of Cambridge, and Stephen Baxter, reader in medieval history at King's College London. John Hines, at the beginning of 1066, England's king was Edward the Confessor. How prosperous and stable was the country at that time?
2: If we can imagine the point of view of an active um, and alert adult in shall we say, the beginning of 1065, a year before all of the great events of 1066. I think somebody in that position could really have thought of the country as having seen a period of stability um, and prosperity if those terms had been available to them. Uh, First of all, if we look at the situation economically, um, important, of course, to remember that agriculture was absolutely the foundation of any form of subsistence um, economy uh, that they had uh, at this time. We have records from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in the 11th century that tell us when things were going very, very bad, bad weathers, harvest fail and so on and it's perfectly clear that although something like that did happen early on in Edward's reign they'd been through a good period and things were really looking uh, quite well. We've also got very good um, Records from the interestingly, the doomsday accounts in 1086 1087, they're always comparing the situation then with the situation in the time of Edward, and again, those give an impression of a very busy, a very active place um, in the uh, c- countryside. Um, It wasn't just agriculture, though. The towns were thriving relatively. We can see this through proxy evidence in the form of um, the foundation of churches, uh, for instance, in towns of great... um, rash of building of very major churches in towns uh, in the uh, middle of the 11th century. Probably the most significant and outstanding example of all uh, would be Edward the Confessor's own reconstruction of the old monastery on Thorny Island, St Peter's, as what we now know of as Westminster Abbey. So things economically going very well um, in that way. Um, Politically though it would be quite easy to see that things were just about to go wrong the fault lines were emphatically there
0: Edward died in January 1066 and he was childless Um, was it felt at the time that he'd nominated a successor well,
2: classically, of course, it depends who you ask in these things. The um, the Normans um, clearly felt that the succession to the kingship was promised to William, uh, Duke of Normandy. Um, this may have happened as early as the early 1050s, which was a period when uh, Edward was attempting to Um, establish himself more strongly against some of the rival warlords in England in particular a family of Earl Godwin and his sons, the the Godwin sons Um, and then again we're told according to the Norman sources that as late as 1064 Harold may have been, Harold Godwinson may have been sent over to Normandy um, precisely to um, confirm uh, this particular promise that that, that William uh, would succeed Alternatively, though, there are English sources, no doubt stemming from Harold himself, um, which give an alternative story that uh, effectively on his deathbed, uh, William asked Harold to uh, look after his wife and to look after his country and that this was interpreted as in effect a a nomination of Harold as his successor to the uh, Crown of England at that time.
0: Elizabeth Rowe. Um, for much of his reign, Edward uh, faced the possibility of threats from abroad and threats from inside the kingdom. Can you just give us one or two of the the the, the worse of the, uh, of these threats?
3: Well, actually, England was relatively secure while Edward was alive. The major internal threat was that from the north of England the um, earldom of Northumbria had traditionally not been a friend of Wessex and the south and in fact there was a rebellion of the um, of the north in, in 1065 and Tostig who had been the earl of Northumbria was forced out despite his being a very powerful earl and part of this very powerful son of, of Earl Godwin Um as regards the rest of Europe, though, really there were very few threats because of Edward's um, family relationships to the Normans. His mother, Emma, was a Norman, and he had spent his um, exile in from England in Normandy, so Norm- Normandy was full of his friends and relations. In France, King Philip was underage, certainly no, no threat to England there. Um, Flanders supported England in part as a counterweight against their rivals in Normandy, and also um, Tostig, the Earl of Northumbria, who had been exiled by, by um Edward, was married to the sister of of Count Baldwin. So again, you see a situation much more of allies and supporters than of threats. Scotland, uh, King Malcolm had made peace with Edward and was Tostig's ally in Wales. Um, The power of King Griffith um, had been crushed a few years earlier. The Vikings even hadn't been attacking. And so here we get to the area of Europe that could indeed pose a threat to England.
0: But uh John just said that things were in his opening statement that things were about to blow as it were in England I had a feeling maybe, maybe you, please tell me that I'm wrong you know it an awful lot more than I do that there was a sense of warlords not only in the north and there was a sense of this being held together just under Edward the Confessor partly because of his piety perhaps you tell me
3: I don't know if it no I wouldn't wouldn't say that it was his piety but in this part of the Middle Ages, it really was personal alliances that functioned as political ones. And one of the major forms that political alliances took was, were marriage alliances. And so we see that um, Edwin, sorry, Edward has been um, married to to a daughter of Earl Godwin. And so, therefore, as long as the Godwinsons were his relatives by marriage, they were going to support the king. They certainly had their their disagreements um, between them, but as long as Edward was the king and he was married to their family, it was clearly in everybody's interests to support the king, who was, after all, part of the Anglo-Saxon ruling ruling dynasty, a family that had been in power for a very, very long time.
0: But didn't the Godwinners oppose Edward? Didn't they take him on? And, and didn't he exile them? Yes, that doesn't but that suggest to me we've got an easy-going country. You w- exile the most powerful family in England, and uh, then they sail around Ireland, and then they sail up the Thames with the fleet and insist they're taken back. doesn't seem to me like uh, calm waters, I don't know.
3: No, it's, it's true, but every time that there is a rebellion... Um, of Godwin um, or or his family, a reconciliation has to take place, in fact. So Godwin, I mean, probably you could trace the entire um, Norman claim to England from that period, maybe with all due respect to John, not in the 1050s, but in the 1040s, when Earl Godwin himself was exiled. And so it could be at that time that Edward was thinking about about William as a possible ally, as a possible successor, but then we see in the 1050s it must have been clearer to the English that William of Normandy would not be an acceptable candidate to the rest of England, and in fact Edward the Exile was brought back from from Hungary. So so you can see the king trying to find his own English English supporters.
0: Stephen Baxter, can we talk a bit more about this? Godwin of the family, Harold Godwinson and Tostig, his elder brother. There were seven children there. As, uh, as has been indicated by Elizabeth, there were alliances throughout Europe, um, clever alliances. Nevertheless, the, these two brothers, can you tell us? Uh, something about them and why they were so powerful mm.
1: well it really is all about their father old Godwin in in, in the first instance he'd been a henchman of King Knut and had been pr- propelled really from nowhere um, a thanely family from Sussex but had been propelled to power and became Earl of Wessex the largest and most powerful earldom in the 1020s um, at a time when England was being ruled by a Danish dynasty Um, and he was, um, Godwinner married, one of Knut's kinswomen and so married into the Royal Danish Dynasty and they had several children and really from the 1020s until Godwinner died in 1053 this was the most powerful lord in England Um, and when Edward the Confessor returned from exile in the 1040s he didn't really have an independent regime and was heavily dependent upon Godwinner to get things done so Godwinner's family prospered and most of his sons got an earldom at some point in their career and indeed um, Godwinner's daughter Edith was married to Edward himself in 1045 that was the year 1045 that Harold first acquired his earldom and his first appointment was East Anglia as it happens Um, but when Godwinner died in 1053 Harold was transferred to this rich earldom in Wessex which spanned all the way from Cornwall to Kent and um, and so on, and then Tostig was appointed to an earldom surprisingly in Northumbria in 1055, and that signalled a new direction for this family, which had until then been south-based and eastern-based. But suddenly in 1055, Tostig in the north was
0: a new direction. Were they being was that deliberate expansionism? You think?
1: Yes, um, this family was profoundly ambitious and wanted to acquire as much as it possibly could, um, but there was. Deep resentment, I think, in in parts of England to this appointment, um, resentment from a rival family of earls um, who had, who had ruled in the Midlands, place we call of Mercia. So the earls of Mercia were furious about this appointment, um, and a guy called Elfgar went ballistic and and uh, um, rebelled and uh, brought in some Vikings from Ireland and uh, um, um, and um, and, um, and, and, a, and a contingent from Wales to to protest about this. Um, But there was also a family in the north, based at Bamba, um, which was also half-expecting to acquire this earldom. So there was bitter resentment. And insofar as there were divisions within England, yes, it was prosperous and united in a number of respects, and therefore the envy of Europe. But there were these, if you like, tectonic plates, these earldoms, which, when they rubbed and caused friction against them, there really could be seismic consequences.
0: Would it be true to say that the idea of primogeniture wasn't pro- firmly established then? It was Harold was not the eldest son, was he?
1: No, that's right. But um, um, by ten fifty three, he was the eldest surviving son. Um, the eldest son, a guy called Svein, um, had acquired an elder but um, embarrassed himself and his family by having an affair with an abbess, and uh, was sent into exile in the ten forties and. Made, it, made his own comeback, but it never worked out for him, and he died in 1051.
0: So, and we have in this family of these two brothers, one earl in the north, one in the south, you'd expect that this was a clever pincer movement by them, <clears throat> but in fact they fell out spectacularly, didn't mm, they?
1: Yeah, that's right. And the cause of that was, um, or the trigger for that, was an almighty rebellion, um, which took place in Northumbria in 1065. Um, we can piece together a variety of causes for this rebellion, um, It appears that Tostig's governance of the North was heavy-handed, that he levied too much in taxation, that he tried to impose justice too heavily. Um, There was probably also a general feeling that we don't want a southerner ruling us, thanks very much. Um, But the key political mistake he made was trying to um, bump off some members of this House of Bamba, and political murders um, are dangerous in the North, and... um, on the third of October, ten sixty-five, a big gang of Northumbrian thanes burst into Tostig's hall, killed two hundred of his retainers, beheaded them on the beside the river Ouse, and marched south, demanding, "We want Tostig out, and we want a new earl, um, Morcar, the brother of the Earl of Mercia, as our leader instead." And they marched to Northampton, and um, it was there that Harold Godwinson met them and said, "Okay, what are your demands?" They were. They told them. They were told Harold was told what the rebels wanted. And he now returned to King Edward and Tostig um, at a meeting <coughs> at the King's Council in Wilton. And this was a stormy meeting um, where Tostig accused Harold of having incited the rebellion for his own gain, and Harold angrily denied this. But the problem was the only way these rebels were going to be confronted was if Harold mobilised an army. And having fallen out with Tostig at this meeting, he said, ''No, sorry.'' Um, returned to Oxford and said to the rebels, "Yes, okay, um, we'll have peace now. You can, you Morcar, can have the earldom of Northumbria, and Tostig will have to go into exile." And that's pretty much what happened. the Fessel was furious, absolutely livid, and revealingly, his biography says he was impotentia. He had no power, and um, Tostig was forced into exile.
0: But how then, John Hines, with all this going on, and, and the King of Norway thinking that he, he had a right as well as a, a lust to get hold of this crown for this rich plum, uh, England, how did it come about that uh, soon after, or very, very soon after Edward died, Edward the Confessor died at the beginning of January in 1066, Harold Godwinson was crowned in Westminster Abbey? Uh, the
2: situation was quite simply that Harold was in the right place at the right time and quite knowingly and deliberately so, if Edward had been described as as having gone into this state of absolute um disability, his death. Uh, the signs were clear that his death was, was was coming close. Harold's major rival in Edwards Court was undoubtedly his brother Tostig. Personally, I'm inclined, inclined to believe what the Merl- Earls of Mercia and Northumbria now thought and that Harold probably was involved in getting his brother um, out of the way. There's plenty of previous history there with Harold that there was no great family love. And when it came to just the real politic of of the whole thing, the desire for power would have been overwhelming. Um, So the situation is that in a certain sense, as you said, there's no primogeniture. The kingship of England at this point was elective in a way. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the best candidates put their name forward and it was fairly debated and decided who would be. But it did mean that you had to be recognised by the great earls, by the great... Aristocratic leaders of the country um as being king, Harold was able on the the day after um Edward had died he died on on, on the the eve of twelfth night on 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 the the, the 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 feast itself. Edward was buried, and Harold was crowned, having been recognised as king by the witan by the assembly. Um, of the nobles who were there clearly prepared precisely so they for had come this eventuality to, so, yes. so
0: the the, the, no, the Witan had come together knowing that Edward was uh, about the, to they, expire they, they,
2: they, they must have done though probably not all of them because it seems to be um, the case that after that Harold fairly rapidly set off to the north he went up to York because no doubt there would have been further nobles other, other members of the Witan that he needed to get their recognition as well
0: Elizabeth Rowe, what re- reaction was there to this swift takeover of the crown by Harold Godwinson?
3: It was actually quite positive. He had widespread support in England. Um, partly, there is reason to think that he was nominated by Edward. Um, the Bio Tapestry, which, after all, is essentially a Norman production, actually shows. Edward on his deathbed, with his hand reaching out to the the head of Harold Godwinson, who's kneeling, and um, Edward's confidants and advisors are, are around him, and it really looks as though there was a council at the death at the deathbed as to who should be the successor. So the fact that um, Harold Godwinson truly appears to have been nominated by um, Edward. Definitely counted for something. He had the support of the church. He had the support of the southern landholders, and also he had made one of these political alliances by marriage to the earls of Northumbria and, and Mercia. He was he was the brother in law of. Of um, Edwin and Morcar, so he had had made an alliance with the earls of the north as well as the earls of the south. In addition, he was the brother-in-law of the king, and in the recent past, brothers-in-law had become kings in Anglo-Saxon England. He was an able military leader, a very astute politician, and also attacks were expected. Um, Possibly from Scandinavia, definitely from from Normandy, the only other possible candidate was Edgar the Atheling, um, the teenage son of Edward the exile and If you have a choice between a king of the true line of the Anglo-Saxons and an experienced general, you would definitely pick the experienced general in these circumstances. The only person to object to him was Tostig and Tostig was in Flanders uh, with his own his own in-laws.
0: But Stephen the Tostig wasn't going to give up, was it? So he? So he came back with a force and uh, tried to unseat his brother. Can you t- tell briefly about the, the Tostig invasion?
1: Mm, sure. Well, he, he tried to do what Godwinner had done in 1052, which was to mobilise a fleet from Flanders, land in the Isle of Wight, drive it and sail it along the south coast collecting reinforcements um, that plan had worked in 1052 and as you said earlier that fleet was sold, sailed up the Thames and forced Edward to, to give him his job back I think Tostig was trying to achieve something similar and he did exactly the same thing landed on the Isle of Wight and went to Sandwich which was the place where the fleet was often pulled together in this period but at that point he heard news that Harold, his brother, had mobilised the largest enemy—sorry, uh, the largest army—which had ever been assembled in England, and was marching it down to the south. And Tostig, reasonably enough, got a bit scared at this point and started heading north instead. We know that he landed in Lincolnshire, in Lindsay, and sailed into the Humber. We're told Humber with sixty ships, um, but there seems to have been fighting um, because Edwin and Morcar greeted him there. Um, with their own forces, and Tostig was forced to escape up to Scotland. We're told with just twelve of his ships left. So there had been some kind of conflict in Lincolnshire, where the Earls of Northumbria and the Mercia had forced Tostig out again.
0: So, so. we've got Harold. A, uh, with the crown, he's assembled a big army, mm. he fears invasions from the Normans still, he fears in, there's word that something might be coming bad, might be coming out, out, of, out of the state of, of, uh, of Norway mm. his brother is still on the loose though, and he's up in Scotland with Malcolm King of Scotland as it turns out, waiting to ally himself with the King of Norway, turns up. before we go on, John Hines, can you just give, give listeners and myself a, a little sketch of Edward the Confessor's character, and, and Harold's character, how So there's a transition here, a personal transition as well. There's a personal
2: transition, but I think there's a a chalk and cheese change in the character of the individuals that we're we're dealing with. Of course we can only look at them as historical figures. What they were really like is something that's always going to be beyond us. I would actually describe Edward as not more than a puppet king for about the last 15 years of um, his reign, almost a conspiracy by these earls to keep this pious figure um, on the throne. Uh, such as it were and then they could do what they liked um, uh, under that uh, particular panoply. Um, In the case of Harold one very good way of thinking of this is uh, this is literally the era of Macbeth this Earl Seward of Northumbria deposed Macbeth and put Malcolm onto the throne and Shakespeare's play does give us a very good idea of the ruthless nature of those warlords their desire for power, their fixation on um, obtaining power. Now, Harold seems to be motivated in that way all the time. He seems restless, certainly bold, a very courageous man, highly experienced as Elizabeth said, um, in military ways. He'd travelled an awful lot. A very great deal of of ambition um, in, in him as well. Now, I think with that, when we look at the events that have been described in 1065 too, there's something that is a little bit more personal that might come out, which comes out as a very interesting question in this respect, and that is, to what degree did he respond to the events in 1065? Was he just opportunistic? Was he cunning? I think those, those are very important questions. they become particularly important when we look at the way he responded to 1066 and William's landing.
0: Elizabeth Rowe, we've got the Norwegian king, Harald Hadrada, the hard driver, who also claimed to be king of Denmark and he made preparations to invade. Can you give us some idea of the size of the invasion?
3: Yes. Um, We don't have a truly reliable count of the ships that he brought, but the estimates range from about 200 to close to 1,000, but probably 250, 300 ships are about about the right number and these were these would be his longships his warships there also would have been hundreds and hundreds of much smaller boats to, to carry supplies and equipment and horses and and things like that and so these ships would have been summoned from all across norway all the the chieftains and landowners and magnates had an obligation to provide ships and men for a certain part of the year and so it wasn't anything like a standing army or a standing navy but the king could command the uh, resources of his kingdom to assemble a navy and also he had considerable um, forces of of his own. Um, He had served as a general um, in the Varangian Guard in under the Emperor of Constantinople and had a body of men who had traveled with him from Scandinavia through Russia um, into Constantinople and so the same small army accompanied him back to Scandinavia so he had considerable personal resources and then in addition to his own resources, the resources of Norway. He also had the tributary areas of, of Orkney for example and Scandinavian Scotland in Caithness, and also allies in the Northern Isles and the Isle of Man. All these people had were partly Scandinavian, entirely Scandinavian, had alliances, obligations, connections and they all joined with him for the invasion of England.
0: And so did Tostig although he didn't have bring much to the table he brought enough to, to make some sort of difference on her. But Stephen Baxter. So around late August in 1066, we're going. We're getting. We're getting to Stamford Bridge. Mm. Um, the Norwegian forces landed on English soil, and then they swept up the Humber. Can you tell us what the most significant first? That was the first of the battles of 1066 on English soil. Yeah. Then wasn't it? Yeah, and
1: they sailed up the Humber. Terrifying sight. Two, three, four hundred. Major warships slipping up the Humber, um, and they land at a place called Rickal, which is um, a few miles south of it's on the on the Hughes, a few miles south of York, and the first confrontation happens at a place called Fulford Gate, which is now a suburb of uh, of, of York, and there Edwin and Morcar um, um, have a full scale pitch battle against. Um, Harold Hardrada and Tostig's forces. Um, we know very little about the course of the events except that it was a tremendous victory for the Norwegians um, that Edwin and Morka were not however killed um, and that hostages were given to um, Harold and Tostig after the event now hostages become very important in this story for what's coming next because immediately after this, the battle at Gate Fulford, 150 hostages from York were given to Harold Hardrada, but further hostages were promised from the rest of the shire. In a few days' time, we'll meet at a place called Stadford Bridge and we'll give you some more hostages. Um, So, we've got a situation where Harold and Tostig are expecting English to turn up at a particular place um, a few days later. This battle took place on the 20th of of September, Um, and Harold had heard the news of the Norwegian invasion and was marching north.
0: So we've got the Norwegians in, they've won one battle, and uh, obviously a very tough lot uh, roamed across Russia and over to... um, into Byzantium. Now, (coughs) Harold heard this news and he had an army assembled, as I understand it, John Hines, for f- waiting for the Normans who were waiting for the wind to change. Yeah,
2: yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes.
0: Uh, and then having heard that, he turned... R- and he did, from what, all your notes, you, you all think it was a very strong forced march, the 185 miles he took this army up country.
2: Well, I think we must be very careful, and th- this is highly relevant to how we understand the Battle of Hastings as well and the relationship between the two, the way in which the English king could draw his forces together. It certainly wasn't the case that he had just one army and they followed him around everywhere that you went. The army was brought together by a levy of men um, from the hundreds and from the shires largely led by the local landowners the Thanes um, of that time and um, one thing that we do know about from the battle of um, Stamford Bridge where we are able to identify particularly particular English casualties um, there is that it was, in fact, very much the men of Morcar and Edwin from Mercia and Northumbria who were making up. Um, the army, rather than the same army that Harold had had um, down in the south um, all of took, the time.
0: How many did he take? Half an army up there, or I mean, you've got well, to,
2: he, he would have. T- he would have, the, What the people who would have stayed with him were the people who were known as his housecarls. Mm. This was his personal troops. As Elizabeth has already to- to- talked about, Harold Hardrather in Norway would have had these these close troops. They were professional soldiers. They went with him absolutely wherever. Um, he would go to fight a battle. To make up the rest of the army, however, you would be drawing in a levy and you could draw that in from different places. And for since the time of Alfred, the practice had been that you, you uh, as far as possible you weren't putting all of your forces... So you're collecting your
0: forces as you go up country?
2: Uh, calling them in. You're calling yes, them calling them in. Yeah. Them in. They mm-hmm. There are muster points. Mm. Messages go out.
1: Stephen Marks. We just know the identity, in fact, of two people <laughs> um, um, from the Doomsday Survey uh, who, who fought at Stamford Bridge, and one was from Worcestershire, and the other was from um, Essex. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure that what that tells us, but it does tell us that individuals from two different parts of the country. As to the logistics of getting to the north, one thing which is almost never written or, con- or considered in the extensive literature on this subject is whether ships were used and we do know that Harold sailed around took his fleet back to London before going north, and it's perfectly possible, actually,
2: that he transported his fleet. Yes, yeah. though, there is a point, that what Harold had been doing all summer was sitting in the Solent with his fleet, expecting William to come in. There were basically two points where the English fleet would muster, either in the Wandsome Channel sandwich, um, or in the Solent control. I've got to uh, get the Stamford so Bridge. We're, we're, is, is, we're told is, that he lost is, a lot of his ships. Yeah, leaving fine, Ireland. he goes north,
0: they get the Stamford Bridge, and what happens? Right, mm. Stephen, can we brisk along
1: here? Sure. Um, it's the twenty um, fourth of September. Um, Harold reached Tadcaster. It's about nine miles south of um, south south of York. He's desperate to try and achieve surprise. The next morning he slips through York itself and marches towards towards Stamford Bridge, where I think he's been told by the English that the Norwegians are expecting hostages. So he's not expecting Harold to come with an army, he's expect- they're expecting the English to turn up with hostages, and that's key to his strategy. He's probably helped by the terrain. There's a uh, bluff at a place called Helmsley, um, which would um, conceal the view from York. Um, and from the evidence we have the contemporary evidence is a handful of sentences in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle which say that he descended upon Harold um, Hardrada by surprise that the fighting was hard um, but um,
0: that the English were victorious but surprise seems to be a key to this Elizabeth Rowe, uh, what do the Scandinavian sources, such as they are, say about... I I mean, I respect your hesitations because you you keep saying, you know, we don't quite know this and there aren't enough resources for that and some of it's scaldic poetry anyway, but uh, what would the Scandinavian say?
3: By the time we... Get to the most detailed sources. We're talking about a saga that was written not even in Norway, but in Iceland, in the early 13th century, Snorri Sturluson's saga of Harald Hardrada um, in in his Heimskringla, and it seems clear by looking at Snorri's sources, which were earlier sagas of the histories of the kings of Norway, that there was a tradition that had developed about the Battle of Stamford and the events leading up to it. In some ways, the sagas all seem to be saying the same thing because they're all relying on each other. But we do hear that Tostig, for example, had gone first to Denmark and then to Norway to try to gain allies, really, in order to help him win his um, earldom, earldom back. But also... Although skaldic poetry can be a very dubious source of information about these battles, Harold himself was a poet, had poets with him. These poets were like the, the journalists of the time, and partly they what did they say? Well, they talk, they, they talk in more detail about, about um, the Battle of Fulford Gate,
0: because we have yeah, But We want to really, we want to concentrate oh, on right. Stamford uh, Bridge. we really got to get there. <laughs> we're at Stamford right. Bridge, what happened that we know of? If there's lots we don't know about, say that, and let's move on. But what do we know happened, happened?
3: We do seem to know that the Norwegians had left all their armour and most of their weapons at their ships. and this That's must be, sure, is it? Yes, the poems by King Harald himself and also by the other poets um, say that they were without their armour. This was clearly a major advantage for the English. Also... It appears that the Norwegian army felt betrayed by having been led into, into England, that they felt that they had been misled, they had been promised easy pickings by the king, presumably led on by Tostig, and instead they found themselves with this enormous English army cutting them to pieces.
0: John Hines, can you briefly give us... The final outcome was that, that Harold's army won. Have we any idea of the casualties?
2: It, well, it was a very conclusive uh, victory for Harald and his army. Sources tell us that the casualties were very major, and we've got to think of a battle here that's going to involve thousands of men um, on either side. But there were some of the Norwegian side who got away. We know that, for instance. We know that Harald's,
0: Harald Hadrada was killed.
2: He was killed. Tostig was killed, was killed yes. yes, yes. But Harald's son, Olaf, returned to Norway and became king of Norway there. We're even told that he was actually given um, free passage, you know, given safe passage out of the country by, by Harald.
0: But there were serious casualties. And what about the major casualties on on the Norwegian side? What I'm trying to get at, Stephen, have you any idea of the casualties on uh, the English side? Mm. Not that could be
1: quantified. The the one thing that can be quantified is that um, we're told that Olaf and Norwegians limped home with 24 ships... Right We've been told that there's an armada of two to five hundred ships came up the U's, and they went home with twenty four so I mean this is the scale of the slaughter on the norwegian side yeah.
0: and meanwhile maybe this is this is going, my question is going to be content in what you say, but just to move on immediately it does seem to be immediately Harold heard that that the wind had changed william of Duke of Normandy had sailed across, and he was digging in waiting for a battle at battle. yes. Well, he heard that he had landed in yeah. the, in the south. Um, in the south yeah. Yeah. So it, was,
2: it seems to be Harold's decision to fight at
1: battle. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the chronology is that is that William lands on the 28th. The Stamford bridges happened on the 25th. Three days later, William lands in Pavey. How long does a message take to get to the north? one, two, three days, anyway, by 1st of October Harold's suddenly given the news I think we're to imagine, you know, that famous image of President Bush being told about nine eleven happening, you know, something like um, Harold's banqueting Never in York, enjoying me. his <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, oh my god, we've just beaten the Vikings, this is extraordinary but now we've got
0: to face William as well and he turned and went south and again there's yeah. dispute did he, did he take the ships and sail south did he march south he got south very quickly yeah. with something of his army now this yeah. is where, where the, sta- the significance of Stamford Bridge begins to be important yeah. what sort of army did it take back and had it been depleted fatally and this is what I'd like to sort of Vain, I'm, 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 quite,
2: I'm quite certain not. I mean, even with the high casualties at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, most of the real slaughter will take place when one army has broken and there is a rout and they are just being cut down. So the fact that there are massive Norwegian casualties doesn't mean there would be truly massive English casualties, too. We do know, um, as Stephen has already said, that there were some. It's also the case that Harold could collect armies from other, could replenish his men from other shires. As he moved um, down to the south, it would have been that 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 half troop, the the housecarls who were close to him, who had to go, really had to go with
0: him. Is that so. is that the general view around the table?
2: Well, um, Stephen. W- Stephen there's Michael.
0: one striking
1: omission in all the accounts we have of of fighting after Fulford Gate, and that is that Edwin and Morcar, leaders of Earls of Mercia and of Northumbria, are not mentioned again. And um, well, these are the leaders of uh, you know pretty much a half of the kingdom and also as we can reconstruct... So what does that signify to you? Well it signals to me the real possibility that the rivalry between these two families, which is an old rivalry and a considerable amount of hatred between them, was still in play, that the marriage alliance with their sister and Harold was papering over the cracks and that um, they failed to cohere. So they they
0: wouldn't be supporting Harold on his move south, is that what you're suggesting?
1: All of the evidence we have from Doomsday and other sources about participants at Hastings show that um, uh, we don't have any clear evidence of, of Northumbrians or Mercians fighting.
0: Elizabeth?
3: There could also be tactical considerations. The, the forces of Edwin and Morcar were decisively defeated at, at Fulford at Fulford Gate and the Skaldic poems talk about the Norwegians being able to walk across the bog on the bodies of the dead people. Mm. So it could have been that their own forces had been had been seriously depleted. Also there were three hundred or more ships um on um on the ooze um blocking up any ships that Morkar and Edwin would have had at Tadcaster and so it seems as though they might have had some difficulties getting south. In in any case,
0: so John, let's let's talk of Harold arrived south. He has to yeah. cross. He has to cross the a Tower Bridge, doesn't he? Yeah, cross the London yeah, Bridge. And he yeah. decides the options are that he can stay in London, and say yes. to William, starve him out in winter, mm. and say come here, and yeah. uh, or he can wait a bit more, rest a bit, or he yeah. can go for it. And he went yes. for it. Have you any? Have you, from the records, which I know have been sparse, I know I've been pushing it a bit, but never mind, we, uh, why he did what he did?
2: We, we, we can only guess, but this is come back was to when I, I was... I, Bridge, I, I, was uh, I mentioned before this question, is he opportunistic, is he cunning? Did he think, well, I managed to take Harold Hardrada up in Norway by surprise, maybe I can do the same with William? Was morale high? after a resounding victory um, up in Yorkshire. It, it, it is a genuine puzzle why he goes and takes William on. The, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle is telling us consistently he wasn't quite ready for it. In some ways, William took him by surprise um, at battle. But I think a degree of impetuosity coupled with the blood being up the, the, the sense of being on a roll could well explain what Harold was doing at that time hmm. I find like that a... very
1: persuasive um, there's, uh, to add to that there's the extreme annoyance we, William had landed in Sussex in Harold Gobinson's heartland and uh, the dishonour caused by this ravaging army was a consideration but here's one further point about Sussex being Harold's heartland he knew the terrain and I think he had a sense of the best possible place to fight um, uh, uh, or an advantageous point and one motivation for heading off on the 12th of October, 13th of October 1066 as he went south, that fateful decision was perhaps my best chance is to fight him there
3: Another thing to keep in mind is that William, having landed, really needed to stay near his ships. I mean, just as Harold Hardrada brought his his ships up the river, stopped short of York, had his fighting near to the ships rather than in York itself. So William too needed to leave an escape route in case things should turn against him. So really, having landed, he could not seriously make major advances. Mm.
0: So can we just encapsulate, if it's possible now, wow, I didn't realise we were that near the end. <laughs> did Stamford Bridge have a decisive influence then, John? Well, it
2: would be very easy to say whatever importance it had, it was all over in 15 days by the time you got to the Battle of Hastings. The way I would sum it up is that I think it did, and, but actually not so much in England, more internationally in diverting
0: Norwegian ambitions elsewhere. We've got to go. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Next week, the origins of infectious diseases. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science, and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.